We acknowledge that we work on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that this land is stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to Elders, past, present and emerging. And welcome to This Crown is on Fire, your weekly podcast uh, that talks about real women, real issues, and how we are all just trying to keep those crowns on our heads. I am very excited about today's episode. Um, I'm talking to the spectacular Nicole, uh, who is a tax lawyer, an incredibly accomplished woman in the Victorian uh, legal system, and has some incredible advice. Uh, around superannuation and uh, financial literacy and just how the economy is impacting women uh, at such an extraordinary level uh, in these pandemic times. Uh, We, of course, start off with our little segment on what's on fire and what's been extinguished, Uh, but we are so proud of our our fire-making skills that it goes off on a bit of a tangent, so you'll have to forgive us for that. Um, But... Yeah, it is a really great chat. It was really hard to edit down uh, into just the good bits uh, because there was so uh, much good content in there. I'm definitely very keen to get Nicole back on for a future episode uh, to talk about things uh, such as superannuation um, and uh, writing a will and all of those really responsible adult things that we should definitely all be doing Uh, but perhaps don't have time in our really busy schedules to make time for. Um, Or similarly, things that we might consider to be actual self-care, taking care of those things so we don't have to worry about them later or not think about them at 3am in the morning when we're staring at the ceiling. So uh, look out for that in an upcoming week. Uh, But for now, I will uh, let you get on with the episode. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoy my chat with Nicole. So um, what we will do first is the segment that I like to call Fires and Extinguished, uh, which is basically a list of things that have been on fire for you this week and problems that you have extinguished. So, Nicole, what has been on fire for you this week? Well, first of all, fortunately, the fire has actually been on fire this week, which is not easy to maintain, can I say. To keep a fire going overnight so that when you get up in the morning, you don't have to spend 15 minutes actually, you know, going out into the cold and keeping it going. It's a real skill in that. And you have to know your wood. Okay, you really have to know, you know, what the way that it burns and how to how to actually and how to to actually ensure with all the different types of wood that it's going to still be alight in the morning. So that's um, that's a skill that I have that I'm very proud of is managing my an actual fire. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed by that. I've only just started learning how to make a fire. We've got a fire pit and it was the first time a couple of weeks ago that I put it on, on purpose, and it nothing else caught fire. And I was like, my partner was at work and it was just me. And yeah, I, the fact that I, I lit a thing and it stayed alight for a number of hours and then it didn't catch on fire anywhere else and it, it went out by itself. 
uh, was pretty mm. impressive. So, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. What kind of wood burns best and for Well, longest? red gum is the best, yes. And hopefully you've got to make sure that you source your red gum from a reputable supplier who only gets, you know, the, the fallen red gum and only gets it from places where they're legally allowed to, et cetera, et cetera. But when it's your main source of heating, you know, in the house that you live in, it is important. But I, I travelled for about seven years living out of the back of a camper van and had to start a fire every night somewhere around Australia. And so, yeah, became quite good at that too and, and working out how to, you know, grow a fire when you needed it larger for, um, for cooking, but then how to, you know, limit it when you just wanted to have it, you know, going and ready to, to light up again for later. So, yeah, I've had a lot of experience with fire. <laughs> It was good to see Bunnings this week decide to stop selling wood from big forests. I thought it was a very big deal. Yeah. And look, I don't think Bunnings actually sells that much wood from big forests, but I think it's very symbolic. Yeah. I think that's what's important about it. Um, and yeah. for them to stand up against such a big government body too is, um, yes. is pretty phenomenal. So hopefully there's a, a bit of a windfall from that and people can start coming around to the idea that that's not a good company who are not doing good things. Yeah, it's a good message. Um, probably a bit of a surprise for us to be going well done, Punnings, but we do have to acknowledge the, those large corporations when they do the right thing and they have on this occasion done the right thing. Yeah, yeah, especially mm. look, large corporations like that, particularly out in places where I live and no doubt places where you live tend to employ a lot of my students who I work with um, and yes. young people and uh, also older people. Uh, my partner's cousin retired from the police force really recently. Um, so he's not like of retirement age, but obviously when you do such an active job for such a long time, uh, retirement uh, comes a bit earlier. Uh, and now he works yes. at Bunnings part-time and he loves it. Um, yes, yeah. And I think they're quite a good employer and they have good training. Yeah. And I do think that they look after their employees. Hmm. So back to your actual question of fire and extinguishing, though, I did want to mention the work that I've done over the last few months, in fact, not just over the last week, on JobKeeper. So we know, of course, with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and people having to lock down and businesses being closed by government directive, et cetera, that then the federal government announced as part of their economic stimulus measures that employers could enter into this JobKeeper scheme and then pay their employees at least 1500 a fortnight and that would keep uh, ensure that people had money, did, they didn't need to turn to JobSeeker via Centrelink so they could actually be supported via their employer. So it was really, I, I actually almost called it private or did call it the privatisation of Centrelink. We do have to make sure that that privatisation doesn't continue, uh, that it's only for these purposes. But um, when it was announced, there was a lot of confusion about eligibility and eligibility kept changing and so forth. And so I spent a lot of time, of course, in my job, I had to know exactly how it worked and, and all the intricacies of it, the exact rules, the legislation, and then be up to date on all the changes. So whilst I was having that responsibility with my workplace, I really tried to share all that information um, personally as well because I knew it would support my friends if they knew that they could access it. And so in terms of, um, you know, providing solutions and putting out fires, a lot of people were really stressed at that time. And just by providing information, answering their questions, ensuring that via Facebook, which I'm, I made a lot of my, um, my JobKeeper posts public, which I normally never do, 
And so my, the information that I put out there got shared quite a lot and I was getting all these random emails and contacts from friends of friends of friends and sisters, you know, cousins and, <laughs> and um, yeah, so, so that was quite good. And, and I wasn't just supporting uh, individuals. There were some very significant well-known charities who we all love that somehow I just, you know, saw them post something on Twitter and I, you know, responded to them privately and then ended up, ended up supporting them and still supporting them to this day. You know, if they have any queries, they're, they're still contacting me. And, and so it's been really nice to uh, support, you know, those charities and, and, and individuals, particularly women, to actually understand JobKeeper, know how to access it, know when they're eligible, and I guess receive what, you know, they're entitled to. Uh, so that, that's been a, a good thing. And that whole concept yeah. of that they're entitled to, but also that our government really has a responsibility to support people through those processes. And I always worry when they overcomplicate processes like this, that they're not fulfilling that obligation, um, that they're not actually taking that time to make sure that the people who need assistance get it. Because if they make it so complicated um, that people just won't apply for it. Um, my dad worked for Centrelink for a really long time and he tells me about when Joe Hockey was the Minister for Social Services and that the application for applying for Centrelink and the baby bonus uh, before Joe had a baby and after Joe had a baby were very different processes because it was the first time that he actually saw the, you know, 30 page application form. Uh, and when, after Joe had a baby, it was only like eight or nine pages. Um, so yeah, just that concept of people who having had to go through it. And I know this week there were some more calls for politicians to live on job seeker and at the current rate and the old rate and whatever they're proposing a new rate be and see that it's not quite so extravagant. It's problematic that we have politicians that need to actually experience that to have any sense of empathy or understanding of the decisions that they're making. And I think that's one of my um, concerns with our current government is that they just are so disconnected from reality. Uh, they don't even understand. I mean, I'm a, a tax lawyer. They just truly don't even understand the laws that they're passing and the impact of them and the, the mechanisms that they're creating, the confusion that they're creating. It's, it's, yeah, it does become very concerning. And JobKeeper was put together very quickly, and I do want to acknowledge that the unions were involved in uh, JobKeeper and JobSeeker as well and uh, I think it was Greg Combay and Sally McManus but I might have that wrong. No, I think that's correct. They, yeah but I, I think that was um, you know good on the government for being prepared to talk to them and work with them and take feedback from them on the particular mechanism. It was created quickly though and there has been some changes and unfortunately um, when you're creating legislation or mechanisms like that there's a line drawn somewhere and you know, obviously there's been issues with people that have fallen outside of that line uh, and yet other people have had, you know, huge windfalls by falling on the right side of that line. We know that so many hospitality workers, uh, obviously university staff, etc., have fallen outside of that line and that's been quite problematic. Artists as well, many artists have fallen outside of it. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that they, they couldn't manage to kind of encapsulate all those that needed the support. Um, and, and of course, we know that many refugees have no access to job seeker or job keeper. Uh, they can actually access their superannuation if they meet certain eligibility. Um, oh, sorry, not 
necessarily refugees, but those on certain visas. So there's a number of different mechanisms, but there's still people that have fallen outside the necessary support. Does it bother you that our government has a financial system that's so reactive and not at all prepared for things like this? And it has a financial system that's based out based on this trickle down economy fallacy. But then when things get really bad, we all turn to socialism. Yeah. <laughs> Does that bother me? It's ironic. <laughs> yeah. Look, it bothers me that our and you've heard me say this very often for the last few weeks. It bothers me that our federal government tries and unfortunately has convinced the public that a federal government operates like a household and it's not the case at all because the federal government is capable of, of creating money out of thin air and the Reserve Bank governor said that just a few weeks ago in Senate estimates. So they have the capacity to look after everybody all the time. They have the capacity to make sure that Job Seeker, which is the, um, the what's used to be called New Start, to make sure that it is actually um, income that enables people to barely survive, but sorry, not just to barely survive, but to actually thrive. Um, and it, it really bothers me that they have the capacity to do that, but they don't. And, and something I saw today, I can't remember who it was on Twitter, but they were talking about defence um, and defence housing have built something like 20,000 houses. And then of course they, they rent them out and or they sell them to the public and then the public you know rent them out to defense force personnel so if defense can build 20,000 houses why can't the government build 20,000 houses and and house 20,000 families who are currently homeless you know it's um it's just these decisions that are, are made um particularly the decisions that affect women i think um you know they're, they're capable of making much more humane and equitable decisions but they choose not to. And not because there's a lack. There's never any lack of money when you're talking about a fair Well, not when we're about to spend, what is it, $270 billion on a missile? It's very hard to come out and say, oh, there's no money to keep this going and we're going to have to do less and blah, blah, blah. And then the two days later, be like, hey, guys, we bought this big fancy toy. Mm. Um, yeah, that yeah. That seems... What, what government debt issue? Yeah, yeah. Right? And look, I broadly don't care about government debt generally like I think obviously we, we need to be sensible and we need to be making the right decisions and making sure that we do have that capacity to borrow money in the future when we need to to put in big infrastructure projects etc but again I don't think it's a household thing and I, I don't think we should have zero consumer debt at a federal level all those other buzzwords that they use but broadly do you think that there are more women on job seeker uh, or on job keeper and I will point out I have huge problems with that language which we'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, which one do you think women end up on? I think the statistics have told us that um, women have been disproportionately um, affected by, first of all, by COVID-19 in terms of the impact on their personal lives, having, you know, to work from home, having children at home, having, you know, concerns with sending children to childcare and so therefore that perhaps not being an option etc um, having to you know manage shopping in a climate of you know extreme behavior <laughs> that's a very polite way of putting it <laughs> yeah um uh but also disproportionately affected by uh loss of jobs loss of income the 
um, you know, particular industries that have been affected have again been tended to be more of those female dominated in industries, not necessarily male dominated. And then on the other side of it, the government has been disproportionately supporting the male dominated industries like the trades in terms of the, the uh, econ economic support and the recovery plans. Um, so for example, that home, oh, stupid home. Um, it's home builder. Yeah, home builder mechanism, which we don't really have the details of yet. Um, but such a poorly designed and, and classist policy. But again, yeah, supporting, um, supporting, really only going to support the, you know, the wealthy and um, those who are happily shielding their real income through Yeah, choice. and also, like, <laughs> tradies have never been off work. Like, they're not an industry that have been stood right. down or yep. moved around or mm. my partner's in the construction industry and they had sort of more work than ever for a little while. Absolutely. And, you know, the state, federal and local governments should have been uh, using this time, they, they should have really brought forward a lot of infrastructure projects, putting in new carpet and solar panels on all the schools whilst, you know, they were home. There's so many opportunities there. I do hope that they made the most of them. Well, I know our school, our school did that. We, uh, we brought up some projects that we had planned mm. over the summer holidays. So what do you think the government should do next? What do we do with a job seeker and job keeper other than change their names? It's, it's so yes. offensive, like this concept that the only purpose of like what used to be called Newstar, which again had that much broader term of this thing happened to you, you've lost your job or done this thing and now you need to do something mm. fresh and new. Uh, but now we just have the sole purpose of it is that you were on this so that you can find another mm. job, um, which yes. is so demoralising yes. in climates yeah. like this. And to use that language when you know how much unemployment there's going to be for the next two years, like it's not going to be over in six months, um, is pretty horrendous. So I'll end that rant there. Um, but what do you think we should do next? What should we do with JobKeeper and well, JobSeeker? You know, sometimes I, um, you know, being someone that uh, operates in the tax area, I do understand the importance of a healthy economy, but you don't have a healthy economy without the health of its people. And... Yeah. Health is made up of so many facets. It's not just about your physical health, but, and you're not going to have physical health if you don't have a healthy income that enables you to purchase food to contribute to that, or, or you know, you're not going to have good physical health if you're not able to undertake um, exercise. And to undertake exercise, you need some decent sneakers, you know, <laughs> or you need, you know, <laughs> You know, to be able to go swimming, all these things actually cost money. You know, my son once said to me, you know, I really like running yeah. because running and just walk outside and you can do it. Well, yes, but you still got to have sneakers. You still got to have a safe community to run in as well. You know, he was about seven yeah. or eight when he said that, and he could run outside our house and and disappear for two hours and whatever. And that and that was fine in our community, but of course, it's not <laughs> fine in every community. So, so health just means so many it has so many facets to it, but underlying that is you know the the actual capacity um to it, it like it does it just comes down to money unfortunately that is what it comes down to you know to have a healthy people they need to have the resources to meet their particular health needs whether they're preventative or whether they're addressing you know symptoms they need those financial resources and if our government is truly committed, you know, to a healthy economy, 
they will ensure that people actually have those financial resources. And the government can ensure that everyone has enough money uh, to have a security and to have health. It just needs them to make a commitment to that. And I understand that making a commitment to that might mean that they have to undo some of the messaging that they've perpetuated about, you know, deficits versus surplus and about, um, you know, as I said before, that they have to operate their economy like a household, which federal governments don't. Um, but, you know, now is the time for change, you know, because we've seen them come up with hundreds of billions of dollars when they needed to. And... And they, they did that by, you know, they issued government um, bonds to the tune of $60 billion or $100 billion, and those bonds were met by the, the our central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia paid for them. That, that could create a debt, or the, the RBA being what it is, you know, the government cur currency issuer can just wipe those debts. You know, that's what they can do. <laughs> so yeah. we don't actually have to have that as a debt that future generations have to pay for we don't need austerity austerity policies will be the worst thing and again it will hit women the hardest um, it will hit um, some of our you know refugee student communities and um, the hardest but it will hit businesses as well businesses need people to have money small businesses need people to have money and it just it just um, surprises me that you know the liberals have this idea of being good money managers and yet Small businesses really struggle when they're in government because yeah. they're, they're so mean. <laughs> you know, and I see small businesses going through this because I, I work with accountants every day. I hear their small businesses, a lot of them themselves. They're talking to their small businesses. It's just getting harder and harder and more and more complex. And accountants are doing, you know, having a really difficult time because their clients are having a difficult time and becoming quite demanding and, and very confused about where things are at. Um, so, you know, I think they have that reputation that they don't serve. But just imagine what it would be for, like, for, for um, you know, parents and carers and uh, those communities that are struggling if they were just given a decent basic income and what it, call it whatever you want, a jobs guarantee, which doesn't mean that you all have to have a job, but if you want a job, there's an opportunity there, or a universal basic income. Don't call it job seeker, as you say, but... But give people basic, like enough basic income that they, they then have opportunities. If they do want to work, well, at least they've got enough income to, to be healthy within themselves, to have some nice clothes, to be able to undertake, you know, appropriate personal hygiene and grooming so that they can really be, and, and to travel, have transport options so that they can really be prepared for taking on a job. But when you put them on a, you know, an income of what Job Seeker or New Start was of $40 a day, of course they're not going to be able to get themselves into a position where they're ready for a job. They're, they're too busy just, you know, surviving and barely doing that. We know they're barely doing that, particularly when robo-debt hit people, which was just a tragedy that has not been properly acknowledged by our government. No, even the, the apology in uh, Parliament was certainly not even remotely enough ever that you can't bring those people back unfortunately and that was just such a poorly mismanaged debacle and how that minister still has his job i'm not sure um 
but even uh, small businesses, if we had that concept of a universal basic income, you know, small businesses that could really do with someone two mm. days a week would be able yeah. to hire someone two days a week because there would be people out there who would want that extra couple of days um, or people um, on disability support pensions and things like that who can physically yes. only work two days a week. But at the moment, there are no jobs that are only two days a week because it's really difficult to find that and small businesses have a hard time actually bringing that together. And I know lots of people who have been on that disability support pension who have had to, you know, go through particular job agencies and they're only applying for jobs that are specifically designed for people with um, different abilities. And that part in itself, if you are 100% cognitive and you just have one hearing impairment or a chronic illness or something similar to that is really soul destroying to the point where you just don't bother because you don't need to be treated like that. And there's no dignity mm. in those services mm -hmm. um, and providing that opportunity. But if we had that universal basic income, the people in those situations were on them, then they're much more likely to go out and seek the work that they can do and likewise, small business owners would be able to provide that because they, they themselves would have a consistent yes. income that they could live on and the actual profitability of their business wouldn't mean such a, a make or break. Yep. Well, they might not so, go out and seek work, but yeah, they might I go out think. and seek to fulfil some of their, their, their other kind of goals and interests which make a, a contribution, you know, to the community because it, it, yeah. because it creates a sense of well-being within themselves and that's what we want people to have a sense of well-being it might also give people the opportunity to upskill but you know also this week we saw increases to university fees mm. at exponential yes. levels particularly in uh jobs that women do humanities based mm. um mm -hmm. law representatives there's a lot more young women going into law these days uh, than there are young men um, and for the government to think that they can funnel children into jobs they would prefer them to have. Um, and so many year 12s that I've worked with, and I know myself when I finished year 12, I didn't look at how much that university like degree cost me because I knew that help existed and I knew that I'd be able to, you know, defer that debt until I was working. So I didn't look at how much it cost. I did the thing that I wanted to do. But this concept mm. that you would punish people for wanting to go into a history degree or a social science degree is ludicrous. I just, how is that going to make our society better in any way? Yes, and the other side of that is, you know, like reducing the cost of other, you know, was there a particular name for those other kind of science degrees? And yet they're cutting funding to, you know, research um, institutions. And so there's less jobs for scientists. So. What's the yeah. point of putting them through there? If one, you don't respect science, <laughs> you're not following science, yes. you're cutting jobs at really important places like CSIRO, like, Arrow, yeah. why would they be going through that anyway? Yes, we're, it's, um, you know, look, I'd love to see this government kind of turn around and, and um, take a, a, a much broader view. I don't, necessarily see it happen but if they do i'll certainly give them kudos for that but um they really should be looking at how to create healthy communities and it's about ensuring people have resources is there anything that like you and i and average normal humans can do to uh make our our communities a bit better through uh 
this second spike of pandemic times, do you think? Well, I think we need to ensure that we're still communicating amongst one another and we're being honest in those communications. And one of the things that I don't think women have done well in the past is actually communicate financial matters with each other. And, and perhaps we haven't always had enough access to, you know, guidance and advice on financial decision-making and that might be why it's sometimes, you know, taken out of our hands or we let it be taken out of our hands. So have, you know, have financial conversations with your friends. Ask them about their salary. Tell them about your salary. Ask them about how they... You know, if they've got a higher salary, how did they negotiate that? Be prepared to ask for, for increases. Um, talk about superannuation. What does superannuation, you know, mean? How much do we need? We've got to have these conversations amongst ourselves. Um, if you've got an opportunity to see a financial advisor, there's quite a lot that are free, you know, might be because they want to sell you a particular product. But take the opportunity to get that first half hour or one hour of financial advice um, and be prepared to share the skills and the knowledge that you have. Um, we really need to talk about money. We have to be prepared to talk about it um, without shame and, and, and I guess try and increase our knowledge. I mean, superannuation is such a tricky subject. And, of course, women, for so many reasons, are... Um, have been really disadvantaged in relation to superannuation um, because, you know, one, they often spend more time out of the workforce because they're engaged in caring responsibilities because they're on, they're paid less, so they're getting less. And of course there's, you know, the interest is being accumulated on less. Um, they might have multiple employers. And once you've got multiple employers, if your income for the month doesn't go over $450 for one of those employers, you're not going to get paid super. And, you know, you can end up with, you know, three employers all earning under the threshold and so you're not getting any super despite, you know, your, your total income being over that amount. So there's so many reasons why women's super balances are very low. And, and you know, that's... um. That's very problematic. And at the moment, what we're seeing, of course, one of the government's economic responses was to allow people to withdraw super, $10,000 in the last financial year and $10,000 in this financial year without penalty. Normally, once your super has been put away, it's locked until you um, either re retire or reach um, age 65. So um, a lot of people, clearly millions, have accessed their super. And there was a lot of warnings about that in terms of the impact on women's super because it's not just about taking 10,000 now. It's, you know, like it, it could be that that has an impact. That, that actually equals having $100,000 less when you actually retire and need that. Um, and then that question is, though, if women have a bit of spare money, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to put it away so they're not going to see it for 20 or 30 years? Usually there's so many other pressing um, things that, that, you know, come to their mind to actually spend that on that super is, on, you know, very much last on the list. I think, um, you know, there's probably two bits of information that might help women to consider um, if they want to build their super. To, to things to consider. One is that if you make a contribution, a personal contribution, not a contribution by your employer, but if you make a personal contribution to your own super fund, it's deductible, it's a tax deduction. 
Um, so it never used to be like that. It used to only be that if you were a sole trader, um, if you ran your own business, that you could actually get a deduction for your super. But that changed a couple of years ago, 2017, I think. But, you know, the message hasn't necessarily got through. I've even found accountants who didn't know that that had changed. Um, so it's really, it's an important opportunity. If you want to give someone a, you know, a great birthday or Christmas gift, you know, give them a couple of hundred dollars and tell them to put it into their super fund. <laughs> and, you know, that becomes a tax deduction for them. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's important. Another recent change, again, which people don't know about is when you uh, make contributions to super, because there was a lot of people who were kind of, um, it was, you know, really just benefiting wealthy, I guess, to a significant extent. So they put these caps on how much super you can contribute. So we call one of those caps, it's a concessional contribution cap. And it's $25,000 per year. So every year you can only put um, or you can only contribute up to $25,000 that come within what's called the concessional contribution cap. Now that the amounts that are part of that concessional contributions cap includes your employer's super. So um, the, the super that your employer puts in there for you. But it also includes the personal contributions that you make. Um, and it also includes your salary sacrificed contributions. Any salary sacrificed amount is not going to be deductible, but that's a different thing. So, so if um, once you go over that $25,000, you get penalised by having to pay tax at the higher rate of tax on the amount that you go over. But the, the tax that you actually, sorry, the contributions that you pay into your super fund are taxed at 15% in the fund. Anyway, now, a number of years ago, the government actually made a change that only came into effect effectively the last financial year, which only ended a few days ago. And what that change is, is that of that $25,000 cap, if you, in 2019, if you actually didn't hit that cap, if you only use, let's say, 15000 of that 25000 then the surplus of 10000 can now be carried forward into the next year. So that means that if you didn't use that in 2019, in um, the year end of 30 for June 2020, your concessional contribution cap is now $35,000. But again, if in 2020 you only, again, contributed through employer contributions and your own, you only contributed $15,000, you've got another $10,000 of surplus that you can carry forward into this financial year, the, the 2021 financial year. So now you would have $45,000. So what that means, you'd have to go and, you know, uh, do a little bit of research to find out exactly how much your, super, your um, employer contributed, make sure you get that figure. But you should be going, in, going back to 2019, find out how much super was paid and subject to the concessional contribution cap and, you know, work out the difference between 25000 and, and what you contributed. Document that amount. Find out now for 2020 how much was contributed under the concessional contribution cap, what was the difference, and document that. Add those two together and then, and then add that amount to your 25,000. Now, just ensure that you document that information because if you end up with a financial windfall, it might be, you know, you get an inheritance, might be you win tax lotto, might be anything. But um, if there's ever becomes an opportunity where you've got, you know, tens of thousands of cash in your, in your hand and you particularly, you know, you've got to consider the age too if you're, you know, looking at being 50 or something. Um, 
it really might be a terrific opportunity to use that extra concessional contribution cap and to put more into your superannuation in that year without any penalty. Um, so just yeah. don't document these things as you go. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, and I knew that you could salary sacrifice super contributions and I knew that I could make my own super con like contributions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that concept that I, I always thought that there was like a, I don't think I knew that you could uh, deduct from your tax. Um, but I always assumed that if you did that, that there was a, a different tax rate or a penalty for doing it. And yeah, just that, even just that idea of saying to someone, you know, it's your birthday, who knows what to buy anybody anymore because we now live in this really consumer driven, mm, like yes. anything I want, I buy from Kmart that week. Um, and so when my birthday comes around, I'm like, I don't want to think, don't buy anything. My house is full of stuff. Please don't do anything. Mm. Mm. Um, and all of my friends say that same thing. So to be able to say, I'm going to transfer you, you some money. What is your super account? Um, and yeah. do it directly yeah. for them <laughs> so that they don't go and buy their children clothes or pay a bill or replace a dining table that, you know, they only put it. food yes. on. Yes. Yeah. And they're all the things, mm. the things that women think about in terms of well, what else could I spend money on? It's not them, really. Um, you might get a, a jacket or a pair of shoes or something that effectively becomes your work uniform. Um, but usually it's household goods or things to make everyone else in your house life easier, not just yeah. things for you. Look, I'll be honest, I, I felt fairly much um, do spend those things on myself, you know, do spend money on myself. I, yeah. But that's well, just it comes down to exactly that thing you were talking about earlier that you know just having exercise costs money being able to yes. go for a run right. requires yeah it one it requires time so if you're not working a job that pays quite the like quite a small amount per hour therefore you're needing to work more hours to make up that time um but even if you even if you buy a cheap pair of runners from aldi you're if you're going to exercise on those those runners every day you're going to need to replace them just as often as if you bought a like a 200 pair of asics like at the end of the day, I think that financial investment ends up being the same, even if you spread it out over yes. time. I learned so, that with my son's shoes when I used to buy him, you know, cheap pairs at Kmart and I would buy him five pairs a year. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the end, I just bought him a good pair and once a year. I mentioned at the start that I travelled around Australia for six or seven years in the back of a camper van. And for that whole six or seven years, I actually do not recall once actually washing clothes actually doing laundry i'm sure i did you know i was fairly <laughs> feral but i wasn't that feral I, I definitely maybe it was traumatic and you have like <laughs> river washing has actually just been erased from your memory well the thing is that now my life is kind of defined by how on top of the laundry i am you know and you know oh, we yeah. feel so constrained sometimes by by these um, imperatives that we have in, in managing a household and managing children and and so forth. Um, yeah. That it How just, are you managing without football? Values. Is football not running at the moment? Sorry? How are you managing without football? Is football not running at all at the moment? Uh, we're, we're training and that's, um, that's really good. There's, good. Yeah. It's, it's an extraordinary feeling when you do something that you love and I'm sure everyone understands that. Hopefully everyone understands that that it might not make sense to be 48 years old and running around on a football field, but there's just something so that feels so um, uh, rewarding about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so we're not playing games and we're not doing contact. And I must say, I didn't think I would miss the contact because 
you know, I always have to have a, a chiropractor put me back together every Monday after <laughs> our Sunday football game. But I do actually miss that. I, I miss, you know, the, the challenge of that. Um, but, yeah, just it's just a lovely thing being out on a football ground, women, and... And, you know, developing your skills and the camaraderie, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's yeah. a real gift to be able to, um, to, to participate in that. I, I don't know how, how much of a gift it is because, you know, of course, I went through my whole life thinking that even though I wanted to, I couldn't play football. Um, but, of course, yeah. now I can. Yeah, it's, an, it's such a weird feeling that we had this complete denial that girls could or would mm. play football, even mm. just like five or six years ago. Mm, yes. And now we live in this whole different world. Um, and kudos to those trailblazers that, that oh. pushed that. We've been talking about, um, uh, you know, a little bit about educating yourself and talking to others about, you know, finances and money and so forth. And I think it's really important for, for women to build up their knowledge. But at the same time, I do think it's important to trust your intuition as well. And yeah. I know that with some of my financial decisions, some I, I made and some I didn't make, but a lot of them were also very intuitive as well. And you know, it's a really true thing to, to trust your intuition. You know, perhaps don't start with buying a house when you don't have the, the you know, capacity to, to, you know, make the repayments. But every day, try and tr trust your intuition, really build uh, trusting yourself. I mean, it's, it's, it goes, I think, for everything. Childbirth. I found childbirth so important for women to really get in touch with their own feelings and trust what they feel about what they need to do and don't need to do. But for yeah. everything, it's just to practice it every day. If you feel like doing something, just try it and, and just see what happens. Just really listen to, you know, as they say, the gut or whatever it is, really trust that and, and act on it been doing some exercises with um positive psychology lately about self-compassion and um it really comes down to that concept too that you know it's about trusting yourself um and sort of moving away from that negative talk of i, I don't know what i'm doing um and i'm not smart enough to make those decisions and i shouldn't be in that role um to changing that way we think about ourselves to be like no no i have I've made good choices before and I do have experience mm. doing this thing and mm. I spend money every day. I should continue to do that. Um, and trusting that we make good decisions. And I think we second guess ourselves so often yes. um, as women and as mothers and wives and sisters and daughters and all those different roles that we fulfill. But as you were saying before, even just having more female friends, um, being able to have conversations about taboo subjects like salary and spending and bills and mortgages means that people are probably less likely to feel so scared about asking for help. From yeah, others. I think it just demonstrates that we actually have a right to have that knowledge and we have a right to make decisions in those particular areas. And as you say, we're making those decisions every day, but perhaps we're not acknowledging that within ourselves. So I, uh, I might cut it there because now I'm going to have to cut this somehow down to somewhere sort of between 35 and 45 minutes of too much good content, Nicole, too much good content. Um, it has been fun. It's been great to, uh, to chat to you about all those things that I didn't know and don't understand. Um, and I'm very grateful for you to come on 
uh, and share your insight with us. And I think it is uh, not only really relatable to hear those concerns about women um, and things like superannuation, but then to be able to share that knowledge is really important. Um, and I guess what I will uh, employ our listeners to do is to go out and tell someone else that you learned that thing. Yes, yes. And if you know something, tell your friends to call you anytime. Tell your friends that, that you're available to answer their questions and, and to discuss, uh, discuss um, decisions that they need to make, ideally before they make those decisions. Just tell people that you're available. It's so important that people know that, that you can be there for them when they need it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sounds great. Well, thank you again. We very much appreciate your company. Um, and maybe we need to actually have like a whole episode on superannuation uh, and planning for that. That sounds like a thing I actually need help with. So, yeah, that, that will either be very insightful or quite depressing. Um, maybe both. And then we should, we should have also have a whole episode on uh, preparing the information needed to write our wills as well. Yeah. You all need a will, Will? I, yeah, I think that this is my thing, right? Because it's got my name in it and it's about death. <laughs> I just generally avoid those. Um, but I haven't changed mine since my marriage dissolved. And uh, so I definitely need to update that. Um, and even just having an episode about how to have conversations about who gets what and who's going to take care of the children and who's going to fight my mother to the death to have them. Oh, okay. I've got to go now because I've got to go and watch the football Essendon's being in Collingwood. Yeah. Oh, no, don't say that. My partner will be very sad. I can't deal with that, those emotions. Well, my partner will be sad too. So we're done, but I don't care. <laughs> All right, well, you go and be happy and enjoy their sadness. Um, thank you again for tonight. I very, very much appreciate it, and I'd love to do this again. Well, I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Nicole. I know that I learnt so much in that conversation. Uh, bits and pieces about super con contributions are things that I literally didn't know before today. Uh, so I hope that you've learnt something too. And I really do mean it when I say, if you learnt something in this conversation, go and tell someone about it. Uh, not just about the podcast, although definitely tell them about the podcast, uh, but tell them about the thing that you learnt. Share that knowledge. The more conversations we have about finances and what we're entitled to and how we can go about getting those things, uh, the better we're all going to be. So really open up those dialogues with your female friends and your male friends uh, in your lives and we'll all be better off for it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It has been such a pleasure bringing it to you. If you've enjoyed it, it would be really great if you could uh, subscribe or follow in your podcast app of choice. And of course, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, if you can rate and review the podcast, it really helps to get uh, these conversations into more ears. Um, I've really loved chatting with you guys over Instagram this week. Uh, you can find me at the little at symbol, this crown is on fire on Instagram. Um, I've been sharing some uh, different aspects of my life and some political rants and other little bits and pieces on there over the last couple of days, which has been fun. Um, so please come and check us out. Have a fantastic week and I will hear you next week. Bye.